Episode 18, The Decline of the Roman Republic. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and try to see how those events shaped our modern world. This is Episode 18, The Decline of the Roman Republic. Okay, at the end of the last episode, I mentioned Julius Caesar because I was planning on bringing him onto the stage in this episode. But as I was researching all the stuff that leads up to Julius Caesar, I realized I was going to have way too much to cover. I'm really trying to keep each episode to around 20 minutes and still cover the topic well. So in order to cover Caesar well, I think I'm going to spend this episode not on Caesar, but on the events that lead up to Caesar. Also, the stuff leading up to Caesar is really interesting in itself, and it's relevant to us today for a couple of reasons. The big tension in the Roman Republic after the successes of the Punic Wars and the conquering of Greece came from the struggle between the patricians and the plebeians, and also from the falling apart of the fabric of Roman society. The Romans began to ignore their own long-held traditions and also their own laws, And one of the things that we're going to see happen in Rome is that people are more and more willing to use force rather than relying on the rule of law and following the traditions to get what they want. We will see a lot of might makes right, which is a major rejection of some core Roman values. This is relevant to us because I think there's a similar thing going on in the world today. In many of the Western countries of the world during the pandemic, government authorities used extrajudicial maneuvers to create restrictions. Rather than resorting to the normal process of legislatures passing laws, which takes a long time, many government executives just issued mandates or orders, which is a pretty heavy-handed way to run a government. For governments like the United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and many of the countries of Europe, executive powers were used that far exceeded the powers granted by their constitutions. In the United States, the federal government regularly usurped powers that are constitutionally guaranteed to the state governments. Additionally, we saw many examples of government officials ignoring mandates that they themselves had created and were supposed to be enforcing, enforcing those things on the plebeians, but ignoring the restrictions themselves. Boris Johnson and the ongoing mask-free parties at Downing Street during the height of the pandemic lockdowns in the UK are just one example. We saw many examples of governments being heavy-handed, and just recently the Canadian trucker protest and other similar protests in other parts of the world are very reminiscent of the things we're about to see happen in Rome as the plebeians go outside the normal course of law and governmental process to try to rectify some substantial imbalances. When the people at the top, that is the government and the oligarchs, begin to act like they are above the law and trying not to protect freedom, but to eliminate it, the plebeians and the Canadian truckers have to stand up and protect the freedoms that are guaranteed by their own various constitutions. Constitutions are part of the idea of rule of law, and all the Western governments inherited this idea in some way from Rome. The idea that no one, not the president, not the prime minister, not the oligarchs, not the senate, ours or Rome's, no one is above the law. That's the rule of law. And when the rule of law breaks down, the system becomes ripe for a tyrant. So how did the rule of law begin to break down in Rome? 
A lot of it had to do with land and how ex-legionaries were being treated. There were also ambitious men who saw that the support of the plebeians would further their own political ambitions. So in this episode, we're going to look at six men, two brothers, two enemies, and then two enemies who worked together, and how their ambitious actions shaped Rome and set the stage for the end of the Republic. The Republic's breakdown also had to do with slavery. Romans captured slaves all over the Mediterranean, and they brought many of them back to the areas around Rome. These slaves were then bought by the wealthy landowners that could afford them. The Romans treated their slaves very poorly, and the slaves had no rights at all. The wealthy Romans, mostly patricians, were able to buy up huge, huge tracts of land, often land that had just been conquered, and then farm that land using slave labor. Slaves couldn't be drafted into the army. So when the poor, but not slave, farm laborers that lived nearby were drafted into the army, their farms fell into disrepair and debt, and then the wealthy bought them up, further enlarging their own holdings. The Roman historian Appian said of this situation, Thus, the powerful citizens became immensely wealthy, and the slave class all over the country multiplied, while the common laborers were held down by poverty, taxes, and coronavirus restrictions. Oh no, sorry, Epin didn't say that. Poverty, taxes, and military service. There were people, however, who opposed this and tried to make changes to the law. But some of those men also saw that by enlisting the support of the plebeians, they could further their own political careers. So we're about to enter this period of the late Republic where ambitious men would try to gain popularity by becoming the champion of one side or the other, by pitting one side against the other, which eventually causes the collapse of Roman cohesion and the end of the Republic. There's a great book on this time period by Mike Duncan, who's the guy who did the podcast, The History of Rome, my favorite podcast of all times. He wrote a book called The Storm Before the Storm, which captures the history of this time, the collapse of the Roman Republic. He captures it in great detail. Plus, it's super interesting and well-written. I definitely recommend it. The History of Rome podcast and this book, The Storm Before the Storm by Mike Duncan. So let's start by looking at the two brothers that are kind of credited with the beginning of the decline. The two brothers are named Tiberius Gracchus and his younger brother, Gaius Gracchus. Together, they're often called the Gracchi. That's a typical Latin way to make something plural, right? Change the us at the end to an I. Hippopotamus, hippopotami. Anyway, the Gracchi. Tiberius Gracchus became a tribune in 133 BC. He had been a war hero, and he was famous for being the first man over the wall in the siege of Carthage. Being first over the wall was a high honor in Rome, so he was already famous and well-known. As a tribune, he was elected by the plebeians, but he got to participate in the Senate. He was not a patrician. His family was a relatively wealthy plebeian family. He wanted to continue earlier reform efforts that were aimed at restoring land that had been seized by the patricians from poor Italian farmers and ex-soldiers. And law introduced that restored any land that had been seized illegally by the patricians and gave back that land to the poor farmers and the soldiers. Naturally, this bill created a strong sense of opposition in the Senate, which was made up of the patricians. They wanted to keep all of their very profitable land. The Senate bribed one of the other tribunes to veto Tiberius's law. Tiberius, using his powers as a tribune, then stopped a whole range of public services in Rome. 
he said that he would restart them when the law was actually brought up for a popular vote. So eventually, the law was voted on and passed, but Tiberius had gained a lot of enemies. The next year, when he was up for re-election as a tribune, a riot started, and Tiberius was beaten to death along with 300 of his supporters. His body and the bodies of his supporters were dragged down to the Tiber River and thrown into the river. This was an incredibly dishonorable burial and a huge insult to the Gracchi family and a huge violation of Roman traditions and values. There's not really a good way to explain what a shock this all was to the Roman system. For people who are used to warfare and who are actually very comfortable with warfare, the Romans abhorred the idea of open fighting in their streets and people being clubbed to death. This was completely against the way that the Romans conducted business, at least in the city of Rome. This was the first time that the threat of violence in Rome erupted into actual violence, and Rome never really went back to having full peace between the classes, at least during the Republic. Eight years after Tiberius's death, his younger brother Gaius was elected as a junior tribune, and he tried to restart the land reforms. He also added even more reforms focused on helping the poor. The consuls tried to block his reforms, so he, in, in return, formed a mob. The two mobs, supporting Gaius and the Senate, came together face to face, the supporters of Gaius Gracchus on the one hand and the supporters of the Senate on the other hand. This time, though, they weren't armed with clubs. They were all carrying swords. They were ready for a fight. It's estimated that 3,000 people died in the fighting that day. Again, most of those who died were Gracchi supporters, and once again, their bodies were dumped into the Tiber. Apparently, there were so many bodies that they created a logjam, and they didn't float downstream. They sat there in the Tiber decomposing, and the stench was described as unbearable. Eventually, some land reform was passed into law, but the wealthy kept finding ways to expand their holding at the expense of the poorer private farmers. Rome also kept finding enemies to fight. They got in a long, drawn-out fight with the North African country of Numidia, which was famous for its cavalry horses. The Numidian leader, Jugurtha, several times evaded capture, and then when he was finally captured and brought to Rome, he bribed several prominent members of the Senate, and he was released. Many Romans were astonished that he had been let go. Shortly after he was released, another guy named Gaius, this time Gaius Marius, who history knows as Marius, was elected consul. Marius was a plebeian, and he had risen to the top of the Roman military hierarchy. He was an experienced soldier and a good general. He was also what the Romans called a novus homo, a new man. That meant somebody who came from a poor family, but had risen to prominence. New money, suit and tie, I can read you like a magazine. That kind of guy. The Roman patriarchy looked down on novus homo men. And they saw them as kind of hicks that had gotten too big for their britches. But Marius was a good general, and his men loved him. So he was sent as consul to go catch Jugurtha, which he did. He had him killed, and he had his head brought back to Rome. This angered the Senate, especially the ones that Jugurtha had paid off. But Marius became more famous and more popular. The next year, there was a serious threat from marauding Gauls in the north, more barbarians, and Marius was re-elected as consul. That was highly unusual. Part of the reputation of the position of consul was that once you held it one time, you couldn't hold it again. But they made an exception for Marius because of the threat of the Gauls, so that he could go up there and defeat the Gauls, which he did. 
and this only made him more popular. In all, Marius was elected consul seven times, though not all in a row. He pushed for land reform and for giving land to ex-soldiers. Marius's supporters were mostly plebeians, and he had lots of support from the people of Rome, but he also had a lot of enemies in the Senate. One of Marius's enemies was a patrician named Sulla. In 88 BC, yikes, we're getting down to just double digits now in our BC reverse countdown. We're getting close to the big BC to AD shift and an episode that I'm really looking forward to when Jesus finally shows up. Anyway, in 88 BC, after six consulships for Marius, Sulla was elected consul, and he was sent to fight against the king of Pontus, which is in modern-day Turkey. Sulla was also a lifelong soldier, a good general, and well-liked by his men. He had, in fact, been in Marius's army that had captured Jugurtha. He was a staunch supporter of the patricians and the senate. Marius himself was furious that Sulla had been sent to Pontus. He thought he should have gone himself instead of Sulla, so he began campaigning in Rome for Sulla's removal. This, of course, made Sulla furious too, and he turned around and marched his army back to Rome. Armed mobs in Rome were bad, but the idea of a general marching his army into Rome, that was a huge no-no, a huge violation of everything that Rome held sacred. Sulla marched his army into the city, which was the first time that armed soldiers had come into Rome. The city of Rome had always been an area where soldiers and arms were supposed to be off-limits, but Sulla claimed that the soldiers were there just to preserve the peace. Marius and his supporters left the city. Sulla and his supporters burned down their houses. Then Sulla left the city, and he and his army headed back off to Pontus to burn down the houses of Pontus, I suspect. While outside of Rome, though, Marius hired his own army, mostly of North African mercenaries, and along with another consul named Cinna, who also hated Sulla, marched this army back into Rome. So we've got three people in charge here. We've got Marius, Sulla, and Cinna. Now Marius and Cinna took control of Rome, and they destroyed the houses of Sulla's supporters and killed several thousand people. It was a bloody purge. Cinna and Marius ruled Rome basically as military dictators. Marius was getting old and apparently was becoming more and more unhinged, and the time of his and Cinna's reign was brutal and bloody. In 86 BC, Marius died, leaving Cinna in charge of the city. Word came to Rome that Sulla, who had defeated the kingdom of Pontus, was returning, but it took him three years to get there. He did not arrive until 83 BC. Cinna raised an army to go out to meet him, but Cinna was so hated that his own men mutinied and killed him, and then some of them went over and joined Sulla. The rest were taken prisoner. One of Marius's sons raised the resistance in the city to try to defend the city against Sulla, but Sulla marched in anyway. So two of Sulla's officers, you need to catch these two names here, Pompey and Crassus, led the troops into the city. Sulla took the prisoners into the city, about 6,000 men, and then he had them all killed while he was addressing the Senate. The Senate could hear the screams of the men being butchered in the streets. Eventually, under the threat of violence, he had the Senate name him dictator in 81 BC. And instead of keeping the post for six months, as was the tradition, he kept it for two years. Then, at the end of 80 BC, 
he left Rome and retired to a huge estate in the country where he basically drank himself to death. But he left his two lieutenants, Pompey and Crassus, in charge of the city. Crassus became incredibly wealthy, partly by taking over the houses and estates of Marius' supporters. Pompey went back to being consul and leading the legions, which he did very well, and that's why he's remembered as Pompey the Great. This is the same Pompey that's going to capture Jerusalem and the temple in 66 BC, setting up the Roman rule that is the context of the story of Jesus. It's all heading towards that episode. We're getting close. Together, Pompey and Crassus stamped out a slave rebellion in Italy in 73 AD, which was led by the gladiator named Spartacus. Though Crassus did a lot of the work, Pompey received most of the glory from this, which angered Crassus and threatened their alliance. Pompey then went on to defeat a substantial pirate threat in the eastern Mediterranean, and after that, he marched back to Pontus, defeated them, then to Syria, defeated them, and eventually to Judea. When he got to Judea, the Jews put up a spirited defense, especially of Jerusalem, but Pompey eventually captured the city and the temple. He apparently poked his head into the Holy of Holies, but he didn't take anything. Then out in the courtyard of the temple, out in front of the Holy of Holies, he had a bull, a pig, and a sheep sacrificed to the Roman gods to show that the Roman gods were superior to the god of the Jews. But then, according to the Jewish historian Josephus, Pompey had the temple purified according to Jewish rituals. Pompey then left the city in the control of the Jews under a Roman ethnarch who reported to the governor of Syria. The ethnarch office is also known as the king of Judea, and this office eventually will be taken over by Herod the Great, who was the king when Jesus was born. The governor of Syria is also mentioned in the New Testament in Luke 2, which mentions a census under Caesar Augustus that was taken while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. We're getting ahead of ourselves again, though. Pompey eventually left Judea, and he went back to Rome a huge hero, and he was welcomed by a massive triumph through the city. From the years of about 80 BC to 60 BC, Rome was basically governed by a military dictatorship made up of Crassus, who controlled the Senate, and Pompey, who controlled the military. But in 60 BC, they added a third person to help them run the city, under what became known as the First Triumvirate. Next episode, we'll meet this third person, our notorious friend and murder victim, Julius Caesar. <laughs>